And just to encourage you, it certainly encourages me. Um, Somebody came all the way down from the balcony. Other people came forward, felt that that picture of a beautifully sculpted heart that was made of ice was for them. And God loves each one of us and knows each one of us individually and personally and cares about each one of us. So it was a privilege with the two ladies that joined me to be able to just be his arms. St. Teresa of Avila once said that God has no arms but our arms, no lips but our lips, no hands but our hands, that type of thing I'm paraphrasing. So thank God. Well, we're coming to the end of a a series that I I hope you've enjoyed. Uh, Certainly I know Ross and I have enjoyed it. Little Books, Big Ideas. And we've looked at Obadiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi, Philemon, 3 John. And today we come to the last one, Jude. I just want to do a a little check. Don't feel uh, uh, guilty. Don't fall into spiritual pride if you have done. But how many of you, after me encouraging you last week, went away and read the letter of Jude? Okay. That's about as good as the 9 o'clock. So give yourself a pat on the back, but don't fall into spiritual pride. Just to let you know... Then our next series, please take the cards, they're in the lobby there, please take them as you go away today. Next series is Hope and Heroism, Courage in Times of Trouble. I think we need a bit of that, don't we? Courage in Times of Trouble. And uh, we're looking at the judges and how men and a woman, Deborah, showed great hope and great heroics in a very difficult and challenging time for the people of God. We need that now. Okay, so we come to this uh, epistle to Jude, this little book, and the big idea that we're going to look at we'll come to in a minute, but let me just tell you a little bit about, uh, about Jude, this little book with the big idea. It's the penultimate book in the Bible, so if you want to turn to it, I'm not going to read the whole thing now, I'm going to read it in chunks as we go through it, but if you go right to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, you find out uh, that uh, we win or God wins in the end don't know about you, but sometimes it's good to go to the end of the book and find out what happens. Well, I've read the end of the Bible. We win in the end. God wins in the end. Revelation is there. Just go back from Revelation and you'll find Jude. Okay? And while you're finding that, uh, if you've got a pew Bible, it's page 1,231 in your pew Bibles. Let me tell you that you'll find some really clear similarities between this little book of Jude, penultimate book of the Bible, and 2 Peter, a little bit further back, 2 Peter, particularly in chapter 2. It seems that there's a lot of overlap, and let me make something clear from the outset. The overlap is particularly significant in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 18, and particularly verse 9 and verse 14 um, of, of Jude. And when you compare Jude and 2 Peter 2 you'll find that both Peter and Jude do something that seems quite unusual. They actually draw from some books that we call the Apocrypha. In the Catholic Bible, there's some extra books called the Apocrypha, and in our Bibles, there are 66 books which we call canonical, the part of the canon. There are not the Apocrypha. Because although the books are useful and helpful, it has not been regarded by the early church and the whole of the church since that there's scripture in the same way that this is inspired word of God scripture. So you might worry about why Jude would quote, and Peter would refer to in a slightly different way, two apocryphal books, the Assumption of Moses and the Book of Enoch. Those apocryphal books are used by Jude for way of illustration. 
He's not saying that they are inspired. He's not, certainly not assuming that they're inspired at all. He's just using it, and I'll point that out when we come to it. But let's get into what the big idea is of this little book of Jude. Let me go to the background and the context and paint the scene for you a little bit. The background and the context of this book are, first of all, that the author is Jude, and that Jude is the brother of James and of Jesus. Now, let me make that a little bit more clear. He's the half-brother of Jesus, because Jesus was planted into the womb of Mary, his mother, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a huge miracle. It's called the incarnation. God becomes man. God becomes flesh. That single cell that the Holy Spirit planted there was clearly grown in Mary's womb in the usual way that a human baby is grown in its mother's womb. And Jesus was born in the usual way, but he was planted there by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not Joseph and Mary coming together as husband and wife, which happened later, and that led to the birth of Jesus' brothers and sisters. Maybe you didn't know this, but just so you do know it, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 3, The people in the town are staggered that Jesus is a prophet, but they're not honoring him because they don't believe he could be. They say in Matthew 6, 3, isn't this the carpenter? Jesus had worked in Nazareth with his father Joseph as a carpenter. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, that's Jude. Judas, also Jude or Judah, and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And a little bit further on in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5, we've got the Apostle Paul saying, Don't we, we apostles in other words, have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, which is Peter, the big fisherman, Simon, Peter, the rock. And what we understand, therefore, is that Jesus had half-brothers, those who were biologically the children of Joseph and Mary, but unlike Jesus, actually not implanted in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the very first verse here in Jude, Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Why would he not say I'm the brother of Jesus? Well, it would be immodest. It would be a bit arrogant. It would be trying to pull rank. But he names his brother James because James is an apostle of the church in Jerusalem. And when we think of Peter, who was another apostle with a heart for Jewish Christians, we're not surprised that Peter and Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, have written similar things to Jewish Christians. So they're the recipients, Jewish Christians, but also Christians everywhere, believers everywhere, including you and I, if you're a Christian today, right now. And it was written by Jude in about AD 65, 65 years after the birth of Christ in what we now call the Christian era, CE. And we read that in the second part of verse 1. It's to those who've been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Now, if you are confident, this will be interesting, that the person sitting next to you, and don't embarrass anyone, but if you're confident that the person sitting next to you on the balcony or down here is a disciple of Jesus, a believer... This will be interesting. Just tell them three things. Tell them that they're called by God, loved by the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. I'll tell you again. Tell them they're called by God, loved by their Heavenly Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Go for it. They need to hear it this morning. They need to be encouraged. 
Alright, that's enough. That's good. Now, if, if despite my advice, if despite my advice, the person next to you said, well, you don't really know me, and with the greatest respect, no, I'm not. Then turn back to them and say, would you like to meet Jesus today? No, just joking. Don't do that. Don't do that. That would be indiscreet. But here's the point. Even if you are not a Christian, let me tell you that there's one of those three truths that still holds absolutely good for you. You are loved by your Father in heaven. I hope you're not embarrassed if you're here today and you're just on a journey of discovery. But let me tell you something for certain, whether you can tick the boxes, whether you can cross the T's and dot the I's, there is a heavenly Father who loves you. You are incredibly precious. And there's a bit of his heart that is broken until you come back into it. That's how much he loves you. The subject of this little letter is, in a sense, defending the truth. Listen to verse 3. Dear friends, writes Jude, although I was very eager to write to you about salvation, that's exactly what Becky described in our children's talk today. It's exactly what she described through the, those wonderful children that we need to be witnesses about, that Jesus saves. What does he save from? He saves some sin. He saves some death. He saves ultimately from sickness and suffering. He saves us for eternity, and he saves us for a purpose now and in the life to come. It's great news. It's good news. This is what Jude wanted to write about, but he goes on in verse 3 to say, I felt I had to write and urge you, listen to this, to contend for the faith, to defend it, to stick up for it, to fight for the faith, not physically, but literally to defend your faith. The faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And if you're a Christian, you are described as a saint, someone who's set apart for a holy purpose. So the big idea he's writing about, he wanted to write about that faith and how you come into that faith, but he thinks, no, he's got to defend the truth and encourage them to defend the truth. Why? Verse 4 tells us. It's very clear. He says, for certain men, Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So these men who've slipped into amongst these Christians, they've changed the grace of God into something it's not. They've brought a false teaching, a heretical teaching, an untruth that wrecks this truth about grace, which we'll come to, and they're living immoral lives. They've turned that grace into a license for immoral living. What does that mean? Well, let me ask you a question. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is there any other context for sexual love and sexual erotic love? The Bible calls it eros. It's a beautiful gift from God. Is there any other context than being pledged between one person and another for the whole of their life, according to Scripture? The answer is no, there isn't. That's the only context. But we know in our society, and we know in the Western world and other parts of the world, that there's a completely different truth that's being shared. That almost lovemaking is a recreational activity that's a lot of fun and very physically exciting, so just get as much of it as you can. That's in a sense what these guys were doing. They were saying this, if grace 
God's unmerited favour, God giving us what we don't deserve, his love, his peace, his blessing. If grace, the thing we can never earn, we can never deserve, is freely given, and God gives us that grace freely to cover the mistakes and the wrong things we do, then hey, say these teachers, we can live just the way we want and God's grace will cover it all. You can have as much sex as you want with anyone you want, whenever you want. Please don't take that sentence out of context. (laughs) Now, you can imagine if someone went online and listened to the message later and they turn it on and they hear a pastor saying, you can have as much sex as you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. You see, that's what the world says. And it leads to a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of sadness. But these people are saying that God's grace covers it, so have as immoral a lifestyle as you want. Certain men had slipped in. They'd changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. These are false teachers. And as we come now to that big idea of the fact we're called to defend and persevere in the truth, let's unpack it a little bit. The big idea then is we're called to defend the truth, contend for it, and we're called to persevere in it. It's almost like today's about boot camp. Get your trainers on, get your sneakers on, get hold of the Bible, and place your feet firmly on the ground and defend the truth. So the first truth that he brings is that we need to refute false teachers and false teaching. Listen to verses 5 to 7. Though you already know this, know what? Just before it says that Jesus Christ is our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. He led them out of slavery in Egypt, but all of them died in the desert where they wandered for 40 years because they rejected the truth of God. They rejected God and they worshipped false idols. So he let them wander around tragic. He's warning these people not to be the same. Verse 6, and the angels, this is a really wacky bit, this, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So he follows up the people who died in the desert with the angels who rebelled. Let me tell you what they are. The angels who rebelled from their position and rebelled against God are like the angel called Satan. The devil, the adversary, who, according to some theologians, was thrown out of heaven because he had pride in his heart and he wanted to be equal or more powerful than God. He wanted human worship, and by the way, he still does. And in the final book of the Bible, after Jude, Revelation, there's symbolic language, almost like sci-fi for us. It's called apocalyptic language, and it speaks about the one who's thrown out of heaven. He's called the dragon. In Genesis, at the beginning of the Bible, he's called the serpent, the snake. And the dragon is thrown out of heaven and he sweeps, we're told, thousands of stars out of heaven with him. Those stars are the sons of God, they're angelic beings. Can anyone tell me in one word the name for those angels who rebelled against God and were thrown out of heaven? It begins with D. Sorry? Demons. Evil spirits. My doctorate was about leadership, my master's degree, and I'm not trying to impress or pump myself up here. The master's degree's title was Deliverance, colon, a vital ministry for the church today. It was about setting oppressed, I don't like the word possessed, oppressed people, demonized people free from evil spirits. And the first thing I had to establish for the University of Wales that I wasn't a nutter for thinking that such a thing as evil spirits existed. 
They do exist. Don't go looking for them. Know that you have authority over them as a believer, but know that there were angels who rebelled against God who were thrown out of heaven. Some of them have been kept in dungeons. But those who rejected their original position, some of them are still free and roaming around. It's an awful thought, but you are securing Christ. The Bible says that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. It says also, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither height nor depth, nor angel nor demon, nothing can separate us. We have authority in Christ. So these false teachers were bringing, it seemed, demonic teaching into it. But he's got one more other example in a similar way, verse 7 says. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. This is heavy, dark language, isn't it? But these three examples... Those who died in the desert, the angels who rebelled, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me just unpack that a bit, because we can make too much of that stuff about Sodom and Gomorrah. The problem at Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't just one form of human sexuality. The problem at Sodom and Gomorrah was an unbridled lust to get into perverted sex in a way that was degrading for human beings and abhorrent to God. That's what the thing is. It wasn't about two people who love each other trying to work out that love. And the church, including this church, under my watch, when we talk about holding on to and defending the truth, we need to defend the truth about God's view of marriage, but we need to defend the truth that God loves compassionately broken people, and we need to love broken people too. People who might even be offended by me using the word broken. But hey, let me tell you something. I'm broken. We're all broken. But we've got a God who loves us, a God who mends us, a God who repairs us, a God who accepts us, a God who melts our hearts. So we've got a lot of thinking to do on that, and I I can't go off on a long tangent. You see, the, the false teachers, that results in flawed thinking. And he tells the people they need to resist flawed thinking. Verse 8 to 10 puts it this way. In the same way, these dreamers, these false teachers... They pollute their own bodies, sexually he's talking about. They reject authority and they slander celestial beings. They slander angels. And then he quotes from the Assumption of Moses, this apocryphal book. But even the archangel Michael, when he's disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, didn't dare bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they don't understand and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. They've just got unbridled lust like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They go for it, whatever they want, because they've corrupted the teaching about grace and said, ah, God will forgive us anyway. God loves us the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Wrong thinking, flawed thinking leads to flawed behavior and wrong behavior. Did any of you go for a walk in Plymouth City Centre yesterday? I did. I thought, Marilyn's away for the weekend with the family in Christchurch. I'll just have a little walk into town, see if I can hook up with my buddy, Ross, and buy him a meal. Because that's a loving thing for me to do. It's a loving thing for any of you to do, so order, form an orderly queue to invite Ross for a meal afterwards. But there you go. <laughs> uh, Ross wasn't available then, so we, we did the meal later. 
But I'm having a walk around Drake Circus, and as I pass by Methodist Central Hall, I look up and there's a young man with his leg over the parapet, over the balcony, at the highest point of Drake Circus. And there's a policeman standing seven yards away, and then I see the police people and the security people trying to stop people going anywhere near there, because it's quite obvious and it's clear, because I checked on it online just last night, that that young man was intending to throw himself off there. Something has gone wrong with the truth that we believe and accept in our country when the highest cause, the most common cause of death for men under 50 is suicide. That's a fact. But you know what shocked me as I stood there with the crowd? I wasn't going to stand there for long, but I knew why I was standing there. I looked up at that young man. I looked at the policeman, maybe four yards, five yards from him, keeping his distance, and I looked at the policemen and police women and security guards there, and I did what I guess most of you did. I prayed. I prayed for God's mercy. I prayed that he wouldn't take his life. I prayed that God would give wisdom to the policeman, whether he knew God or not. I prayed for those who might be seeing something awful and traumatic. And as I turned to go on my way, having prayed from my heart for all those people I've just mentioned, I saw three attractive, bright-looking um, young girls... And I saw one of them say to others, oh, I wish he'd get on with it. Yeah, and I gasped like you gasped. She wanted to get off to do her shopping for her Saturday afternoon joy, but she wanted to see this guy throw himself off first. Where have we got to? I'm not even knocking her. See, she doesn't understand the truth, and neither does he, that he is so precious in the eyes of God that God has a better plan for his life than that horrible death if he died. It's not a very great distance. He might have been just badly messed up. Just to reassure you on him, he is in police custody and they are supporting him. That was good to see that word in the Herald Online's uh, write-up. But the young girl, she'd missed the truth that that young man is made in the image of God and so is she. And that God desires her not only to love him but love her neighbour as herself. So she too, whether she's a woman of prayer or not, the last thing she would want is for him to get a move on and take his life. Boy, we've got a job to do. You see, false teaching leads to flawed thinking. And he tells them to remember the foretelling of the apostles. Listen to verses 17 to 19. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They foretold, they prophesied, they heard the teaching of Jesus and they told the early church. They said to you, in the last times, there'll be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. You see, these false teachers who are bringing the flawed thinking through the false teaching that they're bringing, they'd been prophesied about, the apostles had foretold that there would be those who would come in and slip in as false teachers, but they don't even have the Spirit. And the only kind of Christian there is, is one who's got the Spirit. It doesn't matter whether you're Baptist, Anglican, Catholic, Pentecostal, Methodist, Free Church, or any other type of Christian. There is only one type of Christian and one church that God sees from heaven, and you're in it if you've received the Spirit of God. Amen? That's it. So Christian unity is a given that we need to keep working for. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. Uh, I told you last week that someone thought I was Ross's dad. I, you know, I was honoured, um, I think. I was honoured. But you know that we are buddies and brothers and friends as well as colleagues. You get that. Maybe we have the type of relationship that Paul has with Timothy. That's a precious thought. But Paul writes to Timothy, a, a young pastor, 
maybe a lead pastor at Ephesus, and he writes this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And then in second letter to Timothy, this young pastor, he revisits this thing. And he revisits this theme in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. He says, mark this, there's going to be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal and not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They don't get a very good press, do they? having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, like lust, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Wow. Have you had enough bad news? Because I have. You want some good news? This is dark, isn't it? But do you see, before we move on, why it's vital to defend the truth? Do you see that? But we can't only defend the truth, we've got to live out the truth. So how do we respond to God's Word today? Let's get practical. Responding to God's Word, you might say, okay, Clive, but how? Let's move on to it. We've got to defend the truth, but we've got to persevere in the truth. So I want to tell you about a a beautiful young woman called Katie Piper. I've mentioned Katie to you before. Some of you will know her story. You'll have seen it on television. You might even have read her biography. Katie, when she was breaking into television, attractive young model, made contact with a guy and went to meet a guy and ended up being kidnapped and brutally sexually molested and raped for over 24 hours, when she was released traumatized at some later stage, she was trying to pull her life back together. The same man who'd done this, who tr- she'd uh, had the beginnings of a relationship with, contracted someone to throw acid in her face in the street publicly. They're both in prison now. The picture you see behind me of beautiful Katie Piper is after hours upon hours upon hours of reconstructive surgery. One of the hardest words from God I've ever ever given to anyone was a word that I gave her at uh, Andover Baptist Church where she was worshipping. You know, some of you, that I had the privilege of marrying Katie, conducting her wedding and speaking at her wedding. Um, The word that I gave her at Andover Baptist Church followed some little time after her first visit. The first time she came, thinking, if I go to church, and she wasn't a churchgoer, maybe nobody will judge me. Maybe they'll be nice to me. She had a plastic mask. Her face was, it was hard to look at. It was obvious how much suffering she'd already gone through. But she came with her dear mother, and the first time she came to my previous church, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. I had the privilege of being the preacher that day. I've tried to pastor Katie since, but I want to tell you, to see the way that that young woman has handled suffering is absolutely phenomenal. But the hardest word I ever gave her is when I pulled alongside her in, in, the, in the seats at church with her mother standing next to her and said, during the worship, Katie, I think I've got something from God's heart for you, but it's really hard to say. You were looking forward to an exciting life and you believe that, that you had a wonderful future, and you have. 
But I believe God wants to say to you that he's not going to do amazing things in and through your life despite what you've been through. But because he's a God who in all circumstances work for the good of those who love him, he's going to do an amazing thing in and through your life as a consequence and flowing out of your suffering and your pain. That was hard for a mum to hear. It was hard for Katie to hear. But she has gone on, and I'm not taking any credit for this. Glory to God. She's gone on to create the Katie Piper Foundation. Pray for it. Give to it if you feel it's the right thing to do. Where she helps people with facial disfigurement. It's an amazing organization. But Romans 5, 1 to 5, captures a truth for her life more than... I could possibly imagine this truth of persevering. Listen to Romans 5. This is the Apostle Paul, not Jude writing, of course. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, listen to this, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. There's the word perseverance. And God does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Katie Piper has persevered. Jude was telling those Jewish and other Christians to persevere, living out the truth. And I want to give you some practical tips about how we might do that. But before I do, not many of us would like to be doing what a Catholic priest was doing last week, conducting a mass when someone came in and took his life. The terrible murder of Father Jacques Hamel in France, in Saint-Étienne, where I have a friend who's a missionary, is, is a horror story. But he was living the truth. And he's a martyr. And the word martyr comes from the Greek word martyrios, which means witness. Very few of us in here will ever be called to do anything like that. But he lived the truth. He got on with just the role of being a parish priest and it cost him his life. He's now with God in heaven. There's a battle over truth at this moment in this world. And And this world needs people like you and me to defend the truth that we believe of the Christian faith, but to live it out. Here are the tips. First of all, verse 20 in the first part, build yourselves up. We have a responsibility to build ourselves up in our holy faith. It says here, you dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And it says, pray in the Holy Spirit. The second part of verse 20 All prayer in one sense is praying in the Holy Spirit, but when the Holy Spirit directs and guides your prayers precisely by the fact you're close to God, that's even better. Let me ask you a question, this is additional. How many people in here, uh, you don't have to put a hand up, but but many of you, I guess you have the gift of other languages, the gift of tongues. That's when the Holy Spirit himself prays through us with a language that we never learned. It's supernatural. It's wonderful. Some of you are no doubt a little bit anxious or scared about it or maybe even reject that teaching. Let me tell you, if you want to be prayed for today to be filled with the Holy Spirit and receive the gift of tongues, we will pray with you. It's up to God as to whether he answers that prayer for that particular gift. But we can all pray in the Holy Spirit because if we're Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. 
And then there's another, keep yourselves here. Not only build yourselves up in your holy faith, keep yourselves in God's love, verse 21. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And then be merciful, verse 22 says. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them to show other mercy. But listen to this, mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Let me tell you what Jude's getting at. While you're snatching others who are doubting out of the fire, while you're pulling them back from the brink, while you're telling them to have nothing to do with this false thinking and false teaching about sexual immorality being okay, how graphic is it that he says, show an element of fear that you don't get dragged into the same cesspit, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. I mean, I don't want to offend you. It's not nice to say this in church, is it? He's talking about body fluids. Yeah? Clothing that is corrupted and stained by the outworking of immorality. That is graphic language. God's not pussyfooting around through Jude here. Be careful when you're standing firm and helping others that you don't fall too. But then the good news of the good news. We can be careful and we need to be careful, but we've got to be confident. I'm going to come to the final verses And I can guarantee that most of you here have heard these verses regularly. It's called the doxology. Here it is. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Can, can I say a word to our young people at this moment in time? Thank you, first of all, that not one of you is snoring. At least I can't hear it. That's cool. You've stayed awake throughout the whole thing. You are the future. You are not only the future of this church... You are the future, in a sense, of this nation, and you are the future, in a sense, of this world. Because if you guys don't have hope, and you guys don't have a vision of a different world, and you guys don't have the power from God to deliver that, and you guys don't have a vision of a different society that honors some of this amazing truth, then the future's looking pretty scary to me. So afterwards, please, as we've got our young people in today, Would those around you and those who want to go and pray with them, even if they feel a little bit embarrassed about this, go and lay your hands on them and pray for them, please. But every single one of us need to be confident that if we put our our trust in the truth of God, and if I can just have the last image, if we can remember that Jude 20 in one version, the New Living Translation, if we continue to build our lives on the foundation of our holy faith, then whatever this world throws at us, We have got a future which is full of inexpressible and glorious joy. Amen? I mean, it's not all about this life. Actually, I love this life. The sun's shining in Plymouth. What's not to like, you know? I've got food to eat and clothes to wear and a roof over my head. But I have a life to give in service of God. Defending His truth. Revealing His truth. And most importantly, arguably living out his truth and continuing to build my life on the foundation of this holy faith. And beyond this life, I've got 
inexpressible joy for eternity. I think I'm going to keep giving it a go. How about you? Let's pray. I'm going to ask our musicians and singers to come back. But let's just be quiet for a moment. Father, please help me and my brothers and sisters to be defenders of the truth, to contend for the truth. Help this church to be a church which contends for the truth. But Lord, not just little truths in our head that we gather in a holy huddle and share and share and share and share, but truths that we live out in our lives. Help us to build ourselves up in our holy faith. Help us to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to keep ourselves in your love, Father, through Jesus. Help us to be merciful to those who doubt. And as we do it, as we snatch others from the fire, help us to be careful that we don't fall into that fire ourselves. And above all, Father, help us to be confident that you will present us faultless before yourself through Jesus. Help us to be confident in the truth that we live on and to continue to build our lives on the foundation of our holy faith. We ask this in Jesus' name, Father, and we ask it for his glory. Amen.